The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I am here uh, to talk to Alan Noble. My name is Brad East. I am part of the Liberating Arts Project. I teach theology at Abilene Christian University, and we are talking today to Alan Noble. Alan is Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He is Editor-in-Chief of Christ and Pop Culture, which you should check out online. He is the author of this book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Uh, in fact, uh, I have a group presentation of students uh, who will be talking about that book in just a few weeks in one of my classes. Uh, I believe he has one or two forthcoming books. He might tell us about those in a moment. Uh, and we wanted to talk to Alan for many reasons, but uh, he just published uh, about a month ago an essay for Christianity Today, uh, which we'll have in the show notes called the, the title, the very online title with uh, two complete sentences rather than uh, a proper, uh, proper essay title is called Christian Colleges Are in Crisis. Here's what that means for the church. So welcome, Alan. Feel free to fill in any of the, uh, any of the gaps in my introduction, but I thought uh, we would start out uh, with your essay, and I have some specific questions about it, but why don't you tell us about the essay, its genesis, and what you're trying to do with it? I just want to, as, as you know, titles are always written by the editor, so I was just looking up my, the title I sent them, which I knew they wouldn't accept, but so I think I, I had it as why we need Christian colleges and universities as the world falls apart, which is still pretty online. <laughs> it's still pretty online, but it's only one sentence, only one sentence. not two. So yeah. that's, that's half. I'm sorry. What was your question? You had a question. <laughs> tell us about, tell us about the essay, where'd it come okay. from and what were you wanting to do with it? Yeah. So uh, for, for a long time, I, t I teach at Oklahoma Baptist University and we are a liberal arts university. I get to teach a course sequence called uh, Western Civilization, where we teach from the Romans right up through the 90s, uh, the early 2000s in Western civilization, and uh, we teach that not because we are convinced the Western civilization is better than everybody else, but because this is where we are. Shawnee, Oklahoma is in the West, and we need to know where we are and how we got here before we expand outward. That experience of teaching in a liberal arts institution has given me um, a conviction about how imperative it is that my students and the rest of the church understands where they are historically, um, what came before us. I like to tell my students that the world that we live in is very strange and they don't realize it because this is the only world that they've known. 
and uh, going to the ancient world, going to the medieval world and thinking th about things like individualism and community and authority and hierarchy is essential, I think, for understanding what's strange about our own time and therefore for being good citizens and, and, and believers. So with that conviction, I've been, uh, I, you know, I also care very deeply about what's going on in my own country. And uh, it's insane right now, as 2020 has been very particularly, unusually strange and challenging. And as I thought through some of the problems that I saw in, in contemporary American society, and I thought about the work that we're able to do with the liberal arts, not just literature, which is what I teach, not even just history, which is what I teach with, with the partner, but, but, but all of the, the sciences, the uh, psychology, all of these things, theology. I came to the conviction that, that this is a very powerful and I think needed way, not of fixing everything, because I don't think in those kind of simplistic terms, but of what I called shoring up the ruins, of, of pulling things together, of, of uh, getting a sufficient necessary basis for living in a world that is antagonistic towards uh, our faith, but also to humans as they were designed by God. So I had that conviction and, you know, the, uh, as, as you well know, there's a lot of uh, institutions that are in crisis mode right now. And so that was weighing on me as I have friends who have been let off, uh, laid off and, um, and I was seeing the, the donations going to political campaigns. Evangelicals have a lot of money that they're willing to donate. And I thought, man, I really, I really think that we could do a lot of good. We have the resources to do a lot of good if we would choose to invest in our institutions that are doing this shoring up the ruins. Um, and so I pitched it to CT and they said, okay. And then they changed the title. Yeah. <laughs> As editors are wont to do. Yeah. Um, Okay, so there are a few different directions I want us to go in, and I'll let you uh, choose because your, your essay and your concerns touch on all of them. One is what you identify as the present crisis, uh, all of the, the many factors that have converged in 2020. And that's also what led to the creation of the liberating arts that, as many people have said, especially in theological circles, this time is apocalyptic not only in the doomsday sense, uh, though it certainly can feel that way, but also in uh, the revelation sense, that it, it unveils truths about our situation um, that uh, we might want to um, shove under the rug in ordinary times, but you can't uh, in the light of day. And so uh, one direction is, what are the, what are the acute challenges uh, facing us at this very moment or that have been brought to light in the last three to six months. So that's one path. Second path is uh, we're not only facing a, um, that acute crisis, the problems in higher ed, the problems for institutions like yours and mine, Christian higher ed, have been germinating for a long time. Uh, yeah. This is not new. We've been reading doomsday articles for a long time, and it was certainly exacerbated about a dozen years ago by the financial crisis. Um, you and I, I think we're both earning our PhDs or considering it or coming out in that sort of, in that time frame. Yeah. And uh, what we're hearing now is what we were hearing then, which is uh, no jobs, institutions are dying, people are being laid off, uh, so, yeah. on, so on and so forth. And so there's that second path 
to where even if 2020 hadn't happened, we'd still be looking down the barrel of uh, long-term long-term issues that require uh, require wise and thoughtful response. And then third is um, this this interplay between um, faith, liberal arts, and the formation that students receive. Um, the the channel. Um, that this interview is going to be a part of. We have four different channels on the website, and one of them is about formation and the way in which the liberal arts um, uh, are not about beaming information from my brain into my students' brains, although we do, of course, want them to know things uh, that, they don't, they, that they didn't know before. We want them to have information. Um, we want them to learn discrete facts that they could report to us or be examined on. But that's not uh, the primary thing we're interested in. We're interested in formation. Uh, and But that for you and for me at institutions like ours, uh, that has, that's, that intersects with both faith and with the liberal arts. But neither of those things is limited to, as you talk about in the essay, neither of those is limited to job training. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, you have a couple great lines in here, which I'll read for folks. You say, we are under pressure to reduce our education to efficiently targeted career training and certification rather than the cultivation of wisdom. And then in parentheses, a goal with a much harder to measure return on investment. And then you say also, our schools properly funded and supported can be beacons of light for the church during a time of crisis or they too can crumble into highly efficient baptized career and bureaucracy training centers. That, that last, that last phrase is, uh, you know, uh, uh, is just, that's an abyss of darkness uh, to hear, but it it is all too true, at least as a temptation. So those are the three paths and I'm happy for you to sort of, to uh, pick which one you'd like to talk about the, the present crisis, the long-term challenges um, that have been, been bubbling up, uh, to the surface, uh, or that kind of that that convergence of themes regarding liberal arts, faith formation, career training, etc. Okay, so I'm going to start with formation because I think it also touches on the 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 long-standing crises in, in Christian higher education because it yep. also has to do with that the, these questions of efficiency, which is also in in, in some way coming to a head. Um, so I'm going to just try to answer them all because they're also interesting. Yeah, exactly. So. One of the, uh, the reason I love my job so much is because of formation. One of the challenges last semester in teaching only online was the, that I couldn't have students come into my office and um, just talk with me about life. There's something powerful that can happen when you discuss a work of literature or you're discussing history with students or, or how to write a research paper and they uh, come into your office and you get to uh, counsel them using uh, the, the topics that you've discussed in class, putting it in conversation with faith in their contemporary life, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it, that for me is where a lot of the formation happens. Uh, I Some of my most meaningful moments have essentially been preaching the gospel to students and the context of how they see themselves in a class. Am I successful? Can I do this? Am I phony? Am I going to belong? Uh, and which echoes into this larger question, can I ever get a job? Can I ever succeed in life? Am I ever going to make it? And all of those anxieties are, tar- are, are tied to this emphasis upon 
efficiency and productivity as sort of the absolute good, uh, that creates this anxiety for students. So to be able to teach them literature, to, uh, as I said earlier, uh, reveal to them the fact that our world is very weird and we don't have to think in terms of, for example, individualism, um, that we can think in terms of uh, virtue uh, as well. Those things help form them, uh, but then also my, my conversations in, in my office are often, especially over time, I mean, the ability to, to because, because a liberal arts university has a strong core, that means that I often see students for, who aren't English majors for potentially four semesters. Two years of having the same student who's not my major is wonderful because what happens is I can form close relations with, with a student who's in music and we can talk about faith and we can, I can help him think through things or help her think through things. And I actually have a number of, of music majors who regularly come in and we talk. And uh, that's, that's a, a unique opportunity that in my experience, the liberal arts has allowed for. Now, uh, it's also, uh, in, in a sense, inefficient. Uh, the, the time that I spend sitting with a student, uh, talking with them about life, about how they perceive themselves in the world, how they perceive their work in school, and then their work outside of school and their place in the world, all those things are, from a certain perspective, inefficient. I could be uh, grading more, I could be teaching an additional class. Sitting with a student who needs to vent for an hour and a half is, uh, from a certain perspective, a, a a costly use of my time. And that I think gets to one of the, the old crises there. As I say in that article, there are all kinds of pressures. Some of them are coming from the federal government through regulations and certifications and certain majors. And so if, if one uh, degree requires a certain number of hours, then everybody else has to sort of adjust. Otherwise we lose that degree plan and, and that we can't afford that. And so some of it's sort of federal and it moves down. Some of it is just, is, I think a lot of it is just market driven. Uh, a lot of students and parents, when they think about higher education, they're thinking, how can I help my child uh, be a, a, uh, uh, have, a, have a good career exclusively in those terms? And so that means that the common core, the liberal arts, all these things that are beautifully inefficient uh, as, as the president of my university says beautifully, I think he says beautifully inefficient. Um, those things need to be cut out because they're really not going to help somebody necessarily find a job. Now, um, so I, I, in my opinion, those are, those are some of the, the, the crises that, that have long been uh, boiling up in Christian higher education. We're under the same pressure that everybody else is. But we ought to have a strong conviction that those pressures are not legitimate pressures, that, that um, streamlining things as efficiently as possible in order to get students careers is not actually loving our students. And this beautifully inefficient formation that can happen around the caf you know, cafeteria tables and in offices and outside on walks, that kind of, of, of formation is, uh, is transformative in precisely the way that our, our society needs today because so few people are grounded in timeless truths 
and um, that's precisely what we need. So I don't know how many questions I answered. I went down a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're answering all and more. I'm trying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would, I would add um, uh, in terms of a comment on the questions of question of efficiency. Um, on the one hand, it people people like you and I who teach uh, uh, in bookish subjects, uh, we 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 want to kind of stick it to the economists and say something like it's it's beautifully inefficient, <coughs> because economic rationality can colonize our imaginations, <laughs> certainly colonize our budgets, colonize our, the decisions we make. But on the other hand, um, what does efficiency mean? It it, ha it, it has to do with um, a goal, a telos. If right. if if the goal is for is to get eighteen year olds in and out of a jobs training program as quickly as possible, and there are such things, and they can be good for people. But if that's yeah. what you're meant to be doing, then of course reading Cormac right. McCarthy doesn't contribute to that. Yeah, uh, it is a it is a, an inefficient use of resources, time, money, energy, etc. Yeah. If you are meant you as a professor of English are meant if you're in the business of in christian language uh shaping souls in in um in more higher ed language uh right. forming citizens forming character um contributing to um holistic uh ho the holistic formation of um folks who you want to participate in human flourishing then that's a very good use of resources it is <laughs> it's not and inefficient far from it yeah, the trick is that, that most or commonly we think of efficiency as something that we can measure. And as I said in the article, the challenges, the, the things you just described, that soul formation, we try, right? So I think probably every institution has some kind of metrics they want to see, okay. Or, or, but, but I think most of us know that it's, it's a, an incredibly coarse metric. It's not it's not fine-tuned, and it because it can't be because we're talking about wisdom. But um, yeah, so I would say uh, I don't. It's not. It's not wasteful. Properly understood, it is working towards the right telos, but um, um, but it's also not measurable, and that takes a degree of faith. I mean, I think uh, parents, uh, donors, administrators, and students have to be able to say. Uh, okay, I believe the practice of reading texts in community and discussing them is valuable for the formation of a human being. And I'm okay if I can't come out with some clear outcomes that are chartable and measurable that shows that this student's soul has been transformed. Because I've had so many students, you know, um, you know, after college that, okay, now it's, now it clicks, right? Or, or semesters later, they, they might've been terrible students in the first semester, but after we've stopped measuring for a certain thing, you know, the fourth year, they come back to me and they're like, man, this is great. And so I'm like, so I think that's, for me, that's, that's a key. And, and that goes back to these, well, you know, they're part of the recent crises. We're, we're anxious to prove that what we're doing has value, has measurable value so that we can justify tuition and, and loans, federal loans and stuff. And that's not inherently a problem but uh, I think we have to acknowledge that some of the things we do just aren't going to work that way. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. And what, yeah, what can be, what can be measured um, by economic outcomes 
uh, or what even does or does not lead to economic outcomes uh, is not is not the exclusive or even the primary measure of what we're up to. So you you mentioned uh, uh, ways of forming students relating to students outside of the classroom. Uh-huh. Um, since you're a uh, uh, an English prof, when a student, an administrator, a parent of a potential student asks you, "What is literature good for?" Yeah. What do, you, what do you say? What's your What's your elevator pitch? You're not going to say, "Well, it's going to make the memos you write in your business a little bit less grammatically bad." I assume yeah. that's not going to be your primary answer. Um, so instead of the liberal arts, all of them. Yeah. Uh, yours is Yours is lit. Uh, what's it good for? Yeah. So there are some 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 popular and I think probably uh, valid arguments that it increases empathy. My concern with that is that we're looking for measurable outcomes and uh, there might be a faster way to increase empathy. Uh, if we can create a drug that would increase empathy, do we just get rid of English departments? Like, stop reading books. We don't need them. You have a drug to do it. So that, that to me is problematic, that framing. So instead, um, here's how I understand literature. Um, I understand literature and really, I think all works of art, but it's a thesis I'm working through as attempts by fallen people in God's world to tell some truth about that world. Now, because we're fallen, uh, we can't tell uh, those truths with complete accuracy, but we also can't completely escape from it. And, this, and that it also means that both Christian and non-Christian authors are going to accurately tell or, or come close to telling some truths about the world. And that, of course, is what, in my experience, what I've, I've found in literature, that there, there, it is often the case that maybe a, a, an Ernest Hemingway, uh, who, uh, although at times he you know, dabbled in uh, Catholicism, for the most part, not a believer, but he was able to reveal truths about the human heart that are important to understand. They are important to understand for our own uh, existence in this world, but they're also important for understanding um, how others think and uh, how we got where we are. Um, it's also the case that when you can think about, in, in my mind, when you can think about literature in that way, then you're also free to enjoy it as beautiful without obsessing over worldview. Um, I, I feel like in my earlier years in evangelicalism as a homeschooler, I was trained too much to look for, okay, what is the ideology behind this? Um, And so, okay, once I can categorize it, so then I can say, okay, well, that's what this is, and I'm a Christian, so this is why they are wrong, and then I sort of move on. But when you can understand taxes as pathetic, always in some sense pathetic, but earnest, hopefully, attempts to tell some truth about the world, then you can just when you see someone doing that and it's, and it's done well, you can enjoy its beauty and you can delight in it and you can praise God that some truth is told even despite the ignorance or defiant or, or, or rebellion of, of the author. Um, so those are, those are some important things for me. I think that good literature uh, puts a mirror up to society and forces us to see things that we regularly do not want to see. So that's an important aspect of, of, of literature. 
literature will will take the time to criticize things that we, we don't want to criticize, that we don't want to acknowledge and wrestle with. It al it's also the case, I believe, that the that there is this formative power of reading a book, uh, the practice of charity, of of saying, I'm I'm not going to uh, necessarily agree with what this author is saying, but I'm going to show them the charity of desiring to understand what they're saying. And, um, and that practice, I, I ask my students, um, speaking of formation in the class, I ask my students to have the books out in front of them because I, I think that posture where we're before the text, um, not, we're, not that we're submitting to the text, but we're acknowledging that the text deserves our attention, that we're going to attend to words, attend to sentences and paragraphs and ideas and images. Um, I think that has many, many benefits. And one of them is that it gets us out of our own, our own heads. We tend to be very self-centered people and encouraged to be very self-centered uh, people. And when you're submitting to, not submitting, when you're attending to a text, then you have to push that aside and you have to contemplate. These are all skills that are very essential to Christians. So, um, yeah, I guess that'd be my elevator pitch. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think uh, the challenge for um, answering a question like that, communicating the, the value and goodness of the liberal arts, of literature, of theology, so on and so forth, is um, striking a path between instrumentalizing it. It's good, it's good for some other thing, but also ornamentalizing it, uh, make, making it a kind of nice, a nice decorative feature of one's life, but not, yeah. not sort of like not, uh, speaking to the heart, cutting to the, cutting to the, the very essence of what matters. Um, what do you, so one of the things you talk about in the essay is uh, the necessity and goodness of institutions and what it means yeah. to support institutions. <clears throat> talk to me about both the, uh, both, both within the university and without. So within has to do with not just faculty, but administrators and folks who lead the university and make decisions. Mm -hmm. And then without the university, on the outside of the university, uh, are folks who, uh, potential donors, um, uh, churches, families, neighborhoods, uh, prospective parents and students. Um, what would it mean both on the inside and on the outside um, to, what would it mean, what do I want to say, uh, to foster and cultivate um, a culture of support for institutions like ours, uh, Christian or non-Christian, but liberal arts, higher education, given what sort of in the cultural waters about <laughs> higher ed uh, at this moment, uh, coming from uh, multiple angles, um, what would it mean? I mean, if, if, you, if you could just dream this and it came into, into being, what, what would that look like for parents and neighborhoods and churches and civic organizations, as well as administrators, because sometimes it's folks on the inside who are uh, laying the termites at the foundation, right? Mm -hmm. who, are, who are eventually gonna eat away at the very thing they're meant to serve. That's not always the case, but sometimes it is. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do we foster that? And what would it look like? 
how do we foster it? Yeah, or what it would look like. So uh, the, the fostering is a, is a real challenge. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the article was, was, was hoping to help foster that because right. uh, I, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of it, but I, but I do feel like uh, the benefits of institutions, uh, particularly Christian liberal arts institutions, that are uh, that lean into their institutionality, that that own it and excel at it. The benefits of that, I think, touch on a lot of the values that um, that evangelicals have, and they're looking to get those values met through maybe political means or some other sort of means. And uh, I wanted to say I agree with a lot of those goals. There's a long-term, deeper more slow but meaningful way to approach that, and that's through these institutions. So <clears throat> I'm not sure how to foster it. I would love to have answers. I think everyone would, um, because it, uh, well, let me tell you what I think it would look like first, and then maybe we can dream about what, how, to, how to foster it. So it, within an institution, I think it has, it would involve the employees, everyone having the mindset that what they are, that they are not primarily individual uh, employees, but they are, are part of an institution that is serving uh, a community, that is serving a community, that is doing good in a community. So, uh, there is a, a tendency really in, everywhere in society to, to, to think so much in terms of careers. And, uh, and, and this, of course, goes both ways. As you mentioned, it's administration, but it's also faculty. And of course, if you have an administration who treats you as uh, you know, disposable, then you have to think in terms of careers because you have to feed your family. So you have to think in terms of, okay, what, what do I have to prepare for next, right? Um, but if you have administration and faculty that can commit to a vision and pursue that as a common good, not a private good, but a common good, then uh, I think that that takes loyalty, that takes trust, um, that takes commitment to one another, and a shared, and a shared vision. Um, I suspect it's the case that in most institutions, there are some parts of the campus who, at uh, it, it, it most Christian liberal arts institutions, <clears throat> excuse me, that there are some parts of the campus that uh, faculty and administration that really don't either understand the liberal arts or care about them. Um, and a lot of that has to just do with education. I mean, you know, frankly, I did not know what the liberal arts were until I was at Baylor, uh, getting my PhD. I just, no one had told me what it was. I went to a state community college and then a, a state college for my master's. I had no idea. So, um, I think it would entail having everyone committed to that vision, understanding that formation is key. Sometimes what we can do as a sort of shortcut to the deep personhood formation that can happen in a liberal, liberal arts, sometimes institutions can talk in terms of spiritual change. So they can say things like, it's really important for us that our, that our students you know, are, are growing in Christ, which is true. It's important that they are are transformed, and if you if you if you don't define what those things mean, then you can think, well, I guess we're doing a good job at the liberal arts if we have a Bible study after you know after classes, or we're, we have a really good chapel service, right? But when the institution from the inside understands that this this vision involves uh, deep knowledge, formation of 
of habits, cultivation of, of good habits and virtues, then I think, um, I think you're going to see the results from that. And I think also that the people who want to be involved in an institution like that will, um, I think, commit themselves quite a bit. Now, outside, uh, and this is such a great challenge because it's the challenge, it's the fundamental challenge of, of, of I think, preaching, which is, which is this. How do you get people to sit down in a seat while you tell them that they are sinners? Uh, and um, I don't know how pastors do it. The Holy Spirit, I guess, because uh, nobody wants to be told that they're in sin and they need to repent. Um, but if no one comes in, then the pastor can't, can't preach. But the same thing is true, I think, for the liberal arts. We know that we're offering a good for people, but very often the people we're offering it to don't understand that it is a good. And that's, that's a great challenge, uh, I think, for us. Because if I can, if you're a donor and I can come to you and I can say, as a, as a political, and I can say, uh, you know, if you donate this to a political campaign, we can, we can accomplish these goals in canvassing or whatever. And I can give you specific metrics and it's clear and the election's a few weeks away and you're like, okay, I can see immediate results for this. That feels more tangible than saying, well, if you, if you endow, us, in, in, endow a scholarship, then um, over time, students will have a deeper understanding of God's created world and their place in it, and they will slowly make their, cult, their communities better places. Uh, you might never see that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just reality. But so how, the, the question for me becomes, how do, we, how do we communicate that? And I think it's, a, I think it's very difficult. But when, if institutions think of, if these Christian institutions think themselves as outward facing as, okay, how do I serve the churches in my community? How can I bring churches in to, to help educate pastors and have seminars and conferences and things so that a, a local community thinks that that college is ours. Uh, that college is here for us. It's helping us. I, I'm invested in this and I care about this place and I want to be involved in it. I think that might be one way of doing it. And that's, I think, what the role of a university should be. I think it should be for the cultivation of, 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 of Christian uh, uh, intelligence, wisdom, uh, and, and cultural creation uh, in, in specific communities. So that would include, you know, in my dream scenario, I think it would include, and I think it needs to for the long, long-term health of institutions, uh, very large uh, endowments specifically for uh, tuition for scholarships. Yeah, so that I was about to say, specifically, specifically for you and me, uh, yeah. we, we would like endowed chairs and something. That would I, would, I would like an endowed chair. <laughs> I would, before, even before an endowed chair, I would, I would prefer uh, tuition. I think my job would be easier if students were less stressed. Oh, it's 100% true. I have, stu I have students who are working 40-hour jobs. I mean, I, and <clears throat> That's not possible. Making it somehow making it, you know, so they're, they're, it's kind of a sink or swim. Some it, some it ruins them and some it's like every second of their day for seven days a week is planned out. They know when they're in class, they know when they're at work and they know when they're doing homework. And it's on the one hand, remarkable to behold. On the other hand, it should not be necessary. So I agree, of yeah. course. I will allow my chair to be endowed after, <laughs> after uh, the students receive their, their scholarships. And that's, that's an excellent point that that, that's something that you can, that's something you can pitch to donors. And I will say uh, to your comment about sort of uh, return on investment, um, of course it's true in a sense. 
that giving to something that feels concrete, like a political campaign or whatnot, that's focused on a policy or a person or an election, uh, might appear to have uh, an immediate and measurable return on investment I, uh, compared to, say, endowing scholarships and saying this is going to form future people uh, in 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 wisdom and faith uh, in order to contribute to society as as good neighbors. I want to say that what granting that granting the that claim on those terms, there's another sense in which uh, putting money into politics is a risky bet. Uh, and even if you succeed, it could, fa- it could fail the next day. I mean, this Hello. is win- successes and wins in politics are ephemeral. Uh, they're vaporous. They, they, they often don't last or they have unintended consequences. But if you were to invest in uh, students at liberal arts colleges, at, in, in our case, in Christian, Christian higher ed, uh, that kind of impact could be not only long lasting, um, but could touch countless countless people, and through the actual students who come through, um, touch uh, dozens, hundreds, thousands um, in and through their lives. And so th- there's a sense in which, if you step back just for a moment and think about it, the return on investment, even just in those terms, would be better investing in um, an institution of higher education um, rather than some very discrete local limited public policy yeah absolutely it's yeah so 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 politics uh, gives the impression because it is so immediately measurable that it gives the impression that it's a a lot more effective it's a better return on investment but you're absolutely right it's 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 an illusion and when you look at you know what actually happens you for the most part, what you're doing is you're enriching people who run commercials or who, you know, run campaigns or something, right? That's not helping. That's not, that's not, that's not helpful. Um, but, but, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, as you were talking about affecting people through those students, I think about how many of my students go on to become public school teachers. And when they come out of our program with a love of literature, not just a, an understanding that it can be useful or that it's a, it's uh, you know, it's something you have to know, um, but but that it's actually beautiful and it's good, and that wisdom can be found in it. And when they get the opportunity to go into public schools and fight, you know, the the challenging fight of teaching kids in that context, that's that's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot that can happen through that. And there, I think it has to, you know, the the communication, but also as I said earlier, faith has to come in. I mean, we have to believe that what we're doing is meaningful even if it doesn't fit into a nice discrete chart. Yeah. Yeah, that's well put. I uh I have I've a, this is my fourth year teaching here. I have a couple kids in a uh, local public school, uh, the elementary across the street, and I already have had the experience of a former student teaching my teaching my children. I mean, it's already happening, oh, right? Wow. Uh, which is which is quite wonderful uh, to stumble upon. So let me uh, raise one final issue uh, and set a, and question for you, and you can again kind of take your pick. Um, you discuss a few uh, social issues um, that uh, Christian liberal arts higher education institutions can um, contribute to in some way or, or respond to. Uh, you mentioned democracy, technology, and racism, which of course mm. prevents. Uh, many, uh, many different and profound challenges. And I'm not going to ask you to comment on all of those. Rather, um, given that you mentioned those examples, yeah. um, 
you know, uh, this project, the, the, the liberating arts, uh, that, that, uh, this, um, interview is a part of, uh, is, is, is funded by, um, a CCCU grant, but it's also meant to explore, uh, the enduring value of the liberal arts, broadly speaking, not only within contexts of faith. And so one question that comes to mind for someone uh, reading, your, reading your article is, why should the wider society, why should American society, uh, neighbors and fellow citizens who are not Christians, uh, whether they belong to other religious traditions or are not religious at all, uh, why should they care about institutions like yours and mine? Um, what's, what's the case for uh, our institution's contribution to the common good uh, that isn't limited to our people, our churches, fellow believers, and so forth? Good. And, and that's, those are very important things to think through. <clears throat> Just using you know, the examples that I give in the article, um, we live in a very strange time in democracy. And I suppose in some sense, it's always been a strange time. But one of the benefits of liberal arts broadly is that you can contextualize that within history. What is, what is American democracy? What is a, a democratic republic? What, what, are, what is it that we have? Uh, and why is it worth fighting for? What aspects of it might be flawed and how can they be improved? You can't begin to answer those questions if you don't know how we got here. You just can't. And I, I, I feel like there are a lot of young people who, uh, and frankly, I sort of agree with them, who, who are, are, are desiring radical change in the way that our society works because they're seeing legitimate flaws and they're not seeing those things improved. But without a foundation, without looking at how we got here and what we went through and the ideas behind it, I don't, you can't really offer a way forward. You just can't. You can't. And, and you can speculate, but you're going to make, it, it's not going to be fruitful. So I think as, as citizens, as, as voters, I want our people to have a deep grasp, an, an enduring grasp of, of history and the ideas that energized history and the motives and the desires and the fears that, that were behind it. The same thing is true of, or a similar thing is true, I think, of technology, right? We, uh, universities, uh, particularly residential universities, have opportunities to, they form communities, and those communities will have habits. And uh, those are opportunities for, uh, for us as educators and as administrators to, to um, require students to use their technology wisely. Um, uh, this can, at the, at the you know, m micro level, this happens on, in the classroom. Um, explaining to students, this is what this cell phone is doing to you. This is why we're not allowing it in class. Uh, I mentioned earlier, attending to texts. So that process of attending to, for example, a poem, I don't want to instrumentalize poetry, as you said, you instrumentalize, that's the right language. I don't want to instrumentalize poetry, but honestly, I think reading poetry is probably one of the healthiest ways to combat some of the problems with technology and the way that it, that it, that it, that it scatters our minds. Uh, attending to specific words, learning to love and charitably desire to understand somebody else's words, that's uh, a powerful way of combating the frenetic uh, attention grabbing of, of, of cell phones and 
and television and the internet and all these sorts of things. And those, those things, of course, have tremendous, tremendous value. Right now, the uh, documentary, which I've not seen because uh, I don't want to be depressed, and I think I probably know what it's going to say, the social dilemma on Netflix is, is having a lot of people talking about, wow, this social media thing is, is kind of a mess. Yes. So even, whether you're a Christian or not, there, we have some deep problems that we have to deal with. How can we cultivate habits? The communities that we have in colleges can help us do that. And then finally, I, in my own experience, I, I mentioned I teach this, I co-teach this Western Civilization course sequence. And so, of course, we go over um, the, uh, you know, slavery in America, but also Jim Crow in America. And what's, what's, it's one of my favorite times of the year, because even though it's very hard and it's painful and it's brutal, there's a lot of revelation that goes on. Um, there's a lot of history. I know our, our schools, I, I would like to say that they're trying their best, the you know, public and private schools, but there's just a lot of history that students don't really grasp. They don't realize how close it is. So for example, I remember a, a moment in a class once where we were teaching about sundown laws in Oklahoma, times, cities in Oklahoma that would not allow African-Americans to be in the town after sundown. Otherwise it was, you know, a threat to their lives where they could be arrested. And this blew the students' minds. They did, it was hard for them to imagine, wow, my grandparents lived during this. Uh, this was actually a thing that happened. This is connected to me. There's this ownership. And so when I'm thinking about the racial divisions that we have in our country, there's no silver bullet. But uh, I do think that history, education, is a necessary component. And what the liberal arts say is learning these stories, reading slave narratives, reading James Baldwin, uh, W.E.B. Uh, du Bois, reading these authors is a critical part of figuring out how we got here and why it's so serious. And that is a problem that all Americans should be attuned to. Yeah, yeah, I, I can speak uh, to similar experiences in the classroom. Um, I had one class on Christianity and culture where students uh, could select from a number of books, but touching on these issues and uh, one student read um, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. And I mean, you could feel just in her paper, you could feel her shaking as a result. I mean, it, it shook her to the bone in a good way. And she, I mean, she, I tell students who select, there, I've, I have a few books like that one where I always tell students, I have never had a student who was not grateful that they read this book. Usually they say, I'm so glad you brought this to my attention for reasons that you just said, that our, our, our civic institutions, like public schools and other things, are, are always doing their best. But we have students who come in, 18, 20 years old, who just don't, just don't know. And this is the place, this is the place where, they can, where they can come uh, to know them. Well, thank you, Alan, for your time, for your work, uh, and for the essay. And uh, we appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you.